Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D, and today I'll be bringing you the conclusion of the cases of Essie Jackson, Tanya Harry, Angela Anderson, Latanji Watts, and Lawana Triplett in Portland, Oregon. Let's get right to it. Let's pick up right where we left off last week. Decades after Essie, Tanya, Angela, Latanji, and Luana had been found murdered in North Portland, police announced they had made an arrest in Latanji's case. On Friday, October 16, 2015, 55-year-old Homer Lee Jackson III was booked into the Multnomah County Detention Center on charges of aggravated murder. But who was Homer Lee Jackson III? Homer Lee Jackson was born on December 18, 1959. When he was a teen, his family moved to Portland. He dropped out of school in the 11th grade. In the late 70s and 80s, all the way up to the early 2000s, Jackson was arrested multiple times for criminal mischief, burglary, and DUI traffic violations. Jackson struggled with both a crack cocaine addiction and alcoholism. Oregon Live reported that friends and neighbors of Jackson's said that he had been shot in the mid-1980s and lost a lung. According again to his friends, after that injury, Jackson stopped using crack cocaine and there for a while actually worked in the community with his grandmother, giving out food and clothing to those in need. The community center in which he worked was very close to the locations of the bodies the women had been found in though it appears Jackson didn't start serving his community until years after the murders. It was also reported that Jackson had some type of amnesia or memory issue and had since he was a teen, although there was some conflicting reporting. Some outlets reported that Jackson had amnesia, but the court records I could find never expressly stated that and only referred to, quote, a memory problem. Tuck that into your thinking caps because it's going to be important later. Anyhow, later in life, it appears he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Jackson told detectives he had been diagnosed around 2011. He also revealed that he was still struggling with alcoholism and had been living in Northeast Portland with his nephew. He was no longer working at the community center. His health was failing, so he was receiving disability benefits. In the years prior to his arrest, he spent much of his time in his apartment. In fact, after he had been arrested, his neighbors were shocked. Neighbor Rocky Downing told the Oregonian, The guy hardly came out of his apartment. 
He never bothered anyone and was really quiet. We're kind of all stunned. We didn't hear a peep about this. I guess you never really know who people are. It was shocking enough that Jackson was charged with aggravated murder in the case of 29-year-old Latanji Watts, but everyone soon learned that Latanji's murder was just the tip of the iceberg. The Portland police held a press conference and stated that at that point, they believed Jackson was a serial killer and that he had murdered Essie Jackson, Angela Anderson, Tanya Harry, and Latanji Watts. But what had led investigators to Homer Lee Jackson III after all these years? As it turned out, the cold case unit had been investigating the women's murders for 18 months. And while they didn't come right out and pinpoint exactly what evidence led them to Jackson in the first place, they did reveal that evidence at the scenes and new forensic technology had led to a major break in the case. While neighbors and friends might have been shocked at Jackson's arrest, it doesn't appear that the police were really that surprised. Homer Lee Jackson III was a name they were familiar with, especially around the time the women had been killed. Oregon Live put together a hell of a timeline, outlining the women's murders and Jackson's arrests, and it all went something like this. On March 23, 1983, Essie Jackson's body was found down that embankment in Overlook Park. And I do just want to say real quick that despite having the same last name, none of the Jacksons in this case are related. Jackson is just a popular last name. Anyhow, two weeks after Essie's body had been discovered, on April 2, 1983, at approximately 11.30 p.m., police were called to the 4100 block of North Gantenbean Avenue in reference to an attempted rape. A 16-year-old girl reported that a man held her against her will and attempted to sexually assault her. Homer Lee Jackson was arrested and charged with attempted rape and kidnapping. He was in jail awaiting trial, but the teenage girl moved out of state and wasn't available to testify against Jackson. Without their main witness, unfortunately, prosecutors were forced to drop the charges, and Jackson was released from custody in late June of 1983. Ten days after Jackson was released from jail, on July 9, 1983, 19-year-old Tanya Harry was found drowned in the Columbia Slaw, with ligature marks around her neck. Two months later, on September 22, 1983, 14-year-old Angela Anderson was found in the upstairs bedroom floor of a vacant home at 416 Northeast Going Street. A few weeks after Angela was found, on October 3, 1983, Homer Lee Jackson III was accused of breaking into a restaurant in Northeast Portland to steal food. He was later sentenced to five years probation on that charge. Latanji Watts was found in a field next to the north end of the Going Street Pedestrian Bridge on March 18, 1987. A little over three years later, in July of 1990, a woman Jackson had been living with filed for a restraining order in part claiming Jackson had pushed her on a bed and held her against her will. A year later, in March of 91, the same woman sought another restraining order against Jackson, saying he had choked her. On June 15, 1993, Lawana Triplett was found strangled to death near the same pedestrian overpass as Latanji. In June of 2001, Jackson was accused and later convicted of criminal mischief and of violating a restraining order against the woman he had been living with, the same one, after he slashed her car tires. 
In February of 2006, Jackson was accused of unlawful discharge of a firearm in the city. He was later convicted and given one-year probation. Of course, there were other charges and domestic violence allegations over the years, but those were the main ones. Shout out once again to Oregon Live for putting that timeline together. After his arrest in October of 2015, detectives sat down with Homer Lee Jackson, and at first, he denied murdering anyone, but eventually, he kind of confessed to some of the murders. Where do we go from here, my friend? I may have done them, but I just don't recollect them. That's as good as I can do. I may have, but I don't remember. You may have done which ones? Um, well, the, uh, maybe the girl at the uh, uh, bridge. Maybe, but I don't, I don't remember. The one with the plastic on her? Yeah. Yeah. What makes you think maybe not? Like I say, there's some things that I would do and there's some things I know I won't do. And if I'm going to, if I'm going to drag over there and wipe a halfway cover of plastic, I would, I would just put it all the way over so that way it would take even longer to find it. You know, somebody can walk by and just go on a plastic on, on the ground, no biggie, and just... Is that why you put the plastic on it? I mean, I don't know why I put the plastic on it. I don't know. You know. But if I did, I wouldn't do it half-ass, mm. you know. What if I told you that the person who found her, a citizen who found it, and actually moved the plastic and that it was completely over her, except for just part of her feet? Mm. That's good for them. But like I say, I mean, I don't remember doing it. If I did it, I did it, but I don't remember it. Don't remember it at all. Yeah, I'm trying to wreck my brain, trying to find something in there, but it's just coming up a blank. And I'm not trying to just jerk you guys around, because which other ones might you have done? Maybe at um. Maybe it's the 
or maybe it's because it's by Kaiser and Kaiser is like right there. Yeah, I was going to Kaiser's time. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe that kind of, kind of sparks the yeah. memory. Yeah. What other ones? That's it for me right now. That's it. What about the girls? Slip? No, they still don't. They don't fit fit with me very well. Why? Because it just doesn't seem right. Like what about it? Doesn't seem right. Well, in my head, all of it don't seem right. Like I say, I'm, I'm not a chick. That one, but that one's presentable. Let's say you didn't chase her. Let's say it was just a. Let's say it was uh, a car pulled part way up into the field. And then, because we have tire tracks there, kind of where the debris field starts. And when I say debris, I mean the stuff that came off of her. <clears throat> and the attack started. Oh, it yeah, yeah, the slew. And then the attack started, and it just took a little bit of the distance because we have part of the shoe, and then another shoe, and then her body by the water, and then a broken belt part way along the way. It's not that great of a distance. It's only about 30 feet. Yeah, the picture makes it look... I mean, we can only work with what we can work with, you know what I'm saying? This picture taken in 1983. If the Thomas had happened today, we'd have much better pictures, but we don't. So the distance makes it look super far. It's really not. And remember that thing I said about the fight, how it's fluid? Mm-hmm. And it's not just, you know, two people standing in one spot fighting. I mean, we know that there's a big struggle. And I hear what you're saying about the physical labor. Yeah, I just, I mean, I, but no one thinks that you obviously, look at it this way. You obviously didn't drag her anywhere because she's found by the water and she's drowned. We know that murder happened right there. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? So there was a fight that happened all the way up into, and then that's where the murder is. So there's no physical labor there. We know that. I think she, I think she resisted. She was on her feet. And then when you were finally able to overcome her physical resistance, the belt was already broken. That was of no use to you anymore. And you just held her down in the water. Because that was the easiest thing to do. I have fear of drowning, so I don't drown. <laughs> I have very bad fear of drowning. Yeah, that water right there is not very deep. And you just have to be, you don't have to be deep. It takes less than an inch of water for somebody to be drowned. <clears throat> But like I say, I may have, but I just don't. It just doesn't fit right. It just doesn't feel right. What other ones feel right? Well, like I say, I already said the ones I know I did. The girl's house? Yeah. Overlook? Yeah, I might have did overlook. Okay, what other one? Girl by the bridge. Yeah, the girl by the bridge. That feels right to you? No, because like I say, I didn't see, you know, I guess you're right. Since, since somebody did find it before the police found so maybe they moved the plastic. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, because they might have been walking by and kind of looked and said, hmm. What's that? Yeah, it looks kind of strange. Mm-hmm. You know, and then... It's uh, human nature to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know. So, that fits with you if the plastic was all the way over. That makes sense to you. Yeah, that would make sense to me. Okay. So we have girl in the house, girl in overlook, girl by the bridge. The girl by the bridge and the girl by overlook, like I say, those are iffies. But if I would have done, those are the only ones that even. Do we 
girl butters. You know that, right? Yeah, and I'm here for the girl by the sloop. That was just a short clip of a long and intense interrogation. In fact, investigators spoke with Homer Lee Jackson a total of seven hours over two days. This confession came after a smoke break during which Jackson asked to call his sister. At some point, he was given permission and detectives were present when he made the call. His sister asked him why he was there talking to police without a lawyer, and Jackson responded, I did it. After the call, Jackson began talking about the girl in the house in reference to Angela Anderson. And though he couldn't recall many details, he did in a roundabout half-ass way confess to her murder. He then went on to say he might have killed the woman on the bridge or the woman in the slaw, but if he had done it, he would have done this or that, giving all the O.J. Simpson if-I-did-it vibes he could muster. Despite his confession, however, Homer Lee Jackson III entered a plea of not guilty. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The families of the women had waited years for justice, and it finally looked like it might happen. But as the case moved towards a trial, it all began to fall apart. Motion after motion was filed by the defense, calling into question the validity of the forensic evidence and Jackson's confession. Oregon Live reported that in October of 2017, Connor Hughesby, one of Jackson's defense lawyers, argued that Jackson's confession should be thrown out due to an improper interrogation in which detectives promised both leniency mixed in with threats in order to manipulate Jackson into confessing to murders, quote, it was abundantly clear he had no memory of. Prosecutors argued that the detectives lawfully pressed Jackson about how he should clear his own conscience and give closure to the families of Essie, Tanya, Angela, and Latanji. And further, Jackson's statements were voluntary and the detectives made no threats. Presiding Judge Multnomah County Circuit Judge Michael A. Greenlick disagreed with the prosecution, however, and threw out Jackson's confessions on the grounds that it was, quote, made under the influence of fear produced by threats and promises of leniency by detectives. At the hearing, Judge Greenlick outlined 12 examples from the interrogation. He felt backed up his ruling, going line by line of the interrogation transcript, pointing out each incident. The judge stated that at several points during the interview, Detectives Meredith Hopper and James Lawrence told Jackson that if he admitted to killing the women, and explain why they'd help him. He'd feel great relief, and everything would turn out for the best for everybody. At other times, according to the judge, the detectives were hostile. They exploited Jackson's religious belief by suggesting God would never forgive him for his sins, and promising that bad things would happen if he didn't start talking. The detectives put pressure on Jackson by asking him not to put the families of his victims through the pain of a trial. And if he did, jurors would look at him as a monster because he couldn't remember how many women he killed. Detectives also told Jackson that they would make sure he got the most severe penalty if he didn't come clean on the killings. 
Homer Jackson continued to deny involvement, and detectives turned it up a notch. The judge read a quote from Detective Hopper. Well then, you are a monster, my friend. You deserve what's coming to you, and I hope you get every bit of it. Because I think you're a nice guy to talk to, very pleasant. But I'm telling you right now, you are a monster, and we will do everything we can to make sure you spend as much time in prison as we can put you there for. Because that's what's coming. You have the power to help these people. Of course, the prosecution disagreed with the court's finding. Deputy District Attorney Susan O'Connor later wrote, There is simply nothing threatening about calling the defendant a monster, nor is it threatening to tell the defendant that the detectives will work as hard as possible to do their jobs and make a strong case against the defendant in order to keep him in prison as long as possible. A threat must be more than expression by the officer of an intent to do something that the officer is authorized to do. But the judge had made his decision and the confession as well as the phone call made to Jackson's sister would never be heard by a jury. In May of 2019, OPB reported that prosecutors dismissed the murder charge against Homer Lee Jackson in the case of Essie Jackson, but at the same time one murder count was dismissed, prosecutors added another in the case of 29-year-old Luana Triplett, whose body was found on June 15, 1993. The DA's office declined to comment on why this had all happened and would only say that despite the charges being dropped, Jackson remained a suspect in Essie's murder and that the Portland Police Bureau's cold case homicide unit was still investigating Homer Lee Jackson. The following year, in April of 2020, the prosecution suffered another blow when Judge Greenlick ruled that the cases would not be tried together and instead there would be four separate trials. You see, without the confession, the prosecution's case hung on forensic evidence recovered at the scene. The Ben Bulletin reported that the state, in its own legal filings, acknowledged that, quote, without the evidence considered as a whole, it is unlikely that prosecutors can prove the crimes beyond a reasonable doubt. Why? Well, according to court documents, Homer Lee Jackson's DNA, or DNA consistent with his, was found at each of the four crime scenes. The arguments on whether to try the cases together or to sever them were heard by the trial court over three days in what was kind of a mini-trial. The state provided to the judge all of the DNA evidence in all of the murders. And stacked together, it was damning. In Tanya Harry's case, DNA found on a broken belt by her body, which had been used to strangle her, matched Homer Lee Jackson's. In Angela Anderson's case, two burnt matches and two cigarette butts had been found in the room in the vacant house where Angela's body had been recovered. DNA on one butt had Angela's DNA and the other had Jackson's. Jackson's fingerprint had also been found on a cabinet door in the room which had been removed and found with Angela's bloody sock lying against it. In the case of Latanji Watts, Jackson's DNA was found underneath her fingernails. Investigators found that Jackson's DNA was in fact the predominant or major profile of DNA extracted from fingernail scrapings, meaning there was more of Jackson's DNA under her fingernails than her own. The state presented an expert who testified that Jackson's DNA being predominant suggested that Jackson had to have contact with Latanji at the most about five hours prior to her death. And for Luana Triplett, who was found near the same overpass as Latanji, 
DNA consistent with Jackson's was found on a bite mark on her breast. With Jackson's DNA being found at the scene of not one, not two, not three, but four murders, the state planned to present their case at trial as a what-are-the-odds theory. And really? What are the friggin' odds your DNA ends up at four crime scenes if you're innocent? You'd have to be like the most unlucky bastard alive. Anyhow, that's why trying the cases together was so crucial for the prosecution. The cases on their own weren't particularly strong, since DNA of other males was present on some of the bodies and at the scenes. Not surprising since the women were involved in commercial sex. But perhaps if the defense could argue each case separately, they'd be able to argue that Jackson was nothing more than a client. However, tying the cases together would make a hell of a case, because Homer Lee Jackson III was the only man whose DNA was present at all of the scenes. The state argued that as to each charged crime, the DNA evidence at the other crime scenes was relevant to rebutting the anticipated defense. According to the state, the doctrine of chances established that the DNA evidence at all the crime scenes was relevant to defendants' anticipated argument. In law, the doctrine of chances is a rule of evidence that allows evidence to show that it is unlikely a defendant would be repeatedly innocently involved in similar suspicious circumstances. For example, it's unlikely your DNA would end up at four crime scenes by some inadvertent chance if you weren't involved in said crimes. To back this up, the prosecution presented testimony from a scientist with the Oregon State Police Laboratory's DNA unit, who addressed the specific DNA evidence found at the scenes, followed by testimony from a professor of criminology. Based on research and statistics, the professor testified that the chances of a sex worker being murdered within any given 24-hour period is rare, one in 160,000. The professor also testified that the chances of a person's DNA being present on a given day at the scene where a murdered sex worker is found is also rare, with the estimated chances varying depending on how often the suspected person solicited sex. The state argued that the infrequency of sex worker homicide established the implausibility of random chance, explaining Jackson's DNA being found at the scenes of four separate homicides. The state further pointed out the similarities in the crimes. All the women were victims of human trafficking. All were African-American. All were murdered by asphyxiation. All were assaulted. And all were left in the same area in the same way with their breasts exposed and their pants either unzipped, unbuttoned, or pulled down. The state argued that this showed a clear pattern. But of course, the defense opposed the motion for a single trial and entered a motion to sever stating that the evidence was not cross-admissible and presenting the evidence of each crime to the same jury would result in substantial prejudice. And as far as the crimes having an established pattern, the defense presented testimony from a clinical and forensic psychologist pointing out the differences, such as the women's ages and the way that they died, like the fact that Tanya Harry's cause of death was drowning, never mind the fact that she had been strangled prior to her death. The defense witness pointed out that the murders weren't carried out exactly the same way. 
Of course, after hearing the arguments, the judge denied the state's motion to cross-admit the crime scene evidence. Judge Greenlick denied the motion on three grounds. First, he concluded that the state had failed to establish the foundational requirements necessary to support doctrine of chances reasoning, namely that the events were sufficiently similar and sufficiently infrequent. He explained that the state's evidence supporting its doctrine of chances theory, quote, invites jurors to convict based on speculation and conjecture. Second, he concluded that even if the state could provide the necessary evidentiary support for the doctrine of chances, the state was misusing the doctrine. Based on the court's case law, the doctrine of chances may be used only to prove that certain conduct was performed intentionally, not inadvertently. According to the judge's opinion, doctrine of chances could not be used to prove guilt of murder. And last, the trial court determined that because the doctrine of chances was unavailable as a matter of law, the other crime scene evidence could be relevant to the charged crime based only on the tendency of the other crime scene evidence to establish defendant's character and propensity to commit the charged act. The opinion reads in part. Evidence has only persuasive force if it means that the defendant committed the charged acts. If it is not admissible to prove identity, then it is inadmissible character evidence. Not only were the cases severed, but the prosecution was barred from introducing evidence from the crime scene from one murder and any of the other three. The prosecution's case was essentially gutted. They appealed the decision all the way up to the Oregon Supreme Court, but ultimately the ruling was upheld. By that time, two more years had passed. It was now January 31st of 2022 when everyone was back in court. A deal had been struck. Homer Lee Jackson III pled guilty to four counts of criminally negligent homicide. He was then sentenced to six years and three months in prison, which was essentially time served, with three years of supervised release as he had sat in jail for six years awaiting trial. Oregon Live reported on the proceeding. The victim's families packed the courtroom. Many of the family members held up photos of their loved ones as they spoke. Angela Anderson's sister, Dondra, held a framed photo of her big sister. She said, This is what I have left of my sister. I know she loved me. Nobody can take that from me. Angela's mother, Mary, also spoke, and at one point she asked the judge if she had the right to look at Jackson's face. Mary directed Jackson's defense attorney to move his chair back so she had a clear view, and once she did, she looked Homer Jackson straight in the face as she said, How can you murder a 14-year-old? How can you murder a 19-year-old? You left Angela in that house to just be rotted away like she was nothing. Mary Anderson told Jackson that her heart has hurt ever since she learned the girl found that day was her daughter. She continued, I don't look at you as a man. You are Satan's son. You don't deserve to be out. The judge interjected and instructed Mary to direct any further comments to the bench. But at that point, now 74-year-old Mary had had enough. She walked back to her seat, muttering that Jackson was a serial killer. When it was her turn to address the court, Rachel Triplett, Lawana Triplett's cousin, also addressed Jackson, asking, why would you take somebody's life? She held up her cell phone and turned to show a family photo to those gathered in the courtroom. It was a photo of Luana dressed in a crisp beige suit. Rachel said, This is a picture I want everyone to see. 
No matter if she's a prostitute or not, she was still a sister, a daughter, a cousin, somebody that we loved and belonged to us. Michael Washington, a close family friend of Tanya Harry's relatives, spoke on behalf of her family, including her two brothers who had attended the hearing. He said, for exactly 38 years, 6 months, and 22 days, our family has been waiting for Tanya's murder to be solved. He went on to say, although we do not deem this as justice, this will allow closure and the opportunity to start the healing process. Homer Lee Jackson III declined to make a statement. Hours after pleading guilty, he walked out of jail a free man with time served. As you can imagine, this was a slap in the face to the victim's families. Was that really justice? Because it sure as hell didn't feel like it. Six years for four murders? And Jackson was walking free. Many worried that Jackson would strike again. He had gone long periods without killing before, as far as we know, and then killed again. Not only was this not justice, but many believed Jackson was a danger and his release put the community at risk. And besides that, even after he had pled guilty, police still had suspicions that Jackson could have been involved in other murders, like Essie's, or that of a 19-year-old woman who was found fatally stabbed in April of 1984, under tree branches down an embankment near an apartment complex on Northeast Multnomah Street. She had last been seen along Union Avenue a month before and was rumored to occasionally engage in commercial sex. All things considered, the streets sure didn't feel safer with Homer Lee Jackson on them. But he wouldn't be a danger for long. You see, as he was in jail awaiting trial, his health was declining. According to his defense team, he had been treated for complications from diabetes while in jail, and after his release, his health continued to fail. On July 18, 2023, a year and six months after his release, Homer Lee Jackson III was found deceased at his home. The Oregonian reported that Portland police responded to a call from Jackson's sister who said she found him dead at home in the 7600 block of North Emerald Avenue. According to a police report just prior to his death, Jackson had been hospitalized for heart and pulmonary problems and at the time of his death, he weighed between 75 and 80 pounds. No foul play was suspected. Perhaps justice for Essie, Tanya, Angela, Latanji, and Luana has finally been served. I want to leave you today with a story told by retired detective Lieutenant Harry Jackson as he testified in front of the grand jury. Back in the 1980s, Lieutenant Jackson often patrolled the area of Union Avenue, and frequently spoke to the women who worked in that area. Latanji Watts was one of these women. He remembered her because she was so small, the lieutenant recalled that he often worried about her because of her stature. In the weeks before her murder, he spotted her on the street near Northeast Mississippi Avenue and Skidmore Street. Latanji was a mother and the officer knew that, so in his words, he chewed her out and told her that she needed to get home to be with her kids. After that, he saw her a couple more times in the area, and regardless of his harsh words, one of the last times he saw her, Latanji offered up a blessing to the officer. He recalled that she wished him well and said to him, The good Lord's gonna bless you. Despite her circumstances, one of the last things Latanji Watts did before she was brutally murdered was offer up a blessing to someone she should have seen as public enemy number one. But she didn't. 
Instead, she put her judgment aside and chose kindness. If only the world could do the same. If you suspect that someone is a victim of human trafficking, please report it. In the U.S., you can make a report to the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-373-7888 or by visiting humantraffickinghotline.org. To learn more about this case, you can head over to my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcasts. I'll be bringing you an all new episode next Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already so you don't miss it. You can finally get all your episodes ad free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Go to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.